All right. So this is what my little uh, paper says. Obviously, it's not a fortune cookie, but I think it was very apropos. First thing in the morning, a good woman dresses for work, rolls up her sleeves, eager to get started. That was mine. That's pretty cool. All right. Okay, well, last Sunday, after the service, several people came up to me and told me what they were experiencing um, during the service. So I've asked a couple of them to come forward. Um, David Justice and Peggy Zimmerman, will you guys come, come forward? Okay, David. Do you want me to hold it for you? So you can I can hold it. it. Okay, just make sure you put it close to your mouth. Yeah. Well, it was um, how uh, I know uh, um, a lot of people, maybe an easy way to uh, <laughs> cultivate your desire for more of God is about um, let it, you can let it start from something that's more selfish because you want to be healed and you want love. And um, the source of those things is God. You can want those. And uh, that's something that can, it can come from something like that, even though, I don't know what I'm saying there. Um, You want more of God. Um, Okay, recently during a prayer, Jesus showed me a vision of him hugging me. And then to let me know that um, he he loves me and wants me even more than I want more of him, and um, much more. And um, he wants to answer prayers for more of him, and that he loves and he will answer prayers for more of him despite um, your bad habits to um, like my bad habits to seek things that numb myself and other just spend time in not very good ways and uh he wants to answer those prayers and the one other thing there's a line from a third day song called give and um the chorus says all i want is love i confess to this i will take it lord all you have to give thank you wait wait just a second dave so I just want to make sure. So what you're saying that as you were desiring more of God, the reason you were desiring more of him, you said, well, maybe it's a little selfish. You know, I'm struggling in the area. I know, you know, fail, right? And you're just wanting more of God to help you in that area, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so that was a beautiful thing. You, know, you wanted healing from that. And that's not a selfish thing, <laughs> just to let you know. <laughs> that's good. So you experienced God, um, God's love for you even in that place of uh, brokenness. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Peggy. This is Peggy Zimmerman. As usual, I get pictures. And I was praying, well, last Sunday during the ministry time. And I got this picture of every one of us holding a thimble out, you know, with our hands out underneath the waterfall and holding a thimble. And God's going, that's not going to work. 
because your container is too small. A thimble is just, a, for those of you who don't know, it's a little bitty attachment that comes on your thumb that they used back in the day when they were hand sewing everything so that you wouldn't stab your, your thumb. And a lot of people use that like a little, little cup or something now. And God says, no, I want to open your horizons. I want to broaden your horizons. The reason you're not receiving that much is because you are using a thimble instead of a bucket or pitcher or the one thing that I said was how big and God started to show me in the waterfall. First I felt my ankles getting wet, then my waist, (laughs) up to my shoulder. I had problems gurgling. (laughs) So God was like, Hello, <laughs> you can't you can't outdo God. Thank you. So for you, you were experiencing the, a picture of all of us with thimbles, and then um, getting rid of that and being under the waterfall and getting filled up. That's awesome. Isn't that great? Okay. So uh, one person who shared that's uh, uh, not here this Sunday shared that, you know, I don't do this kind of thing where you envision things, imagine things, so that was a little weird. But um, this person saw an ocean, not a waterfall, which is interesting because this person lives in a place where there are no oceans, and saw a bottle that was half filled with the top on. And he felt like the Lord was saying, take off the top and let me fill you up. Which means if you know anything about bottles with liquids in the ocean, what's going to happen? It's going to be completely inundated. So that was pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you. Let's open with prayer now. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your refreshing waters um, that you are pouring out on us, your torrents, floods of water in and through us. And we welcome you, Lord, to speak uh, more and more in us and to change us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, that we can be the people that you always have wanted and that you're making us into. And Holy Spirit, I pray your, um, your spirit to just prepare our hearts for what you've got for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week I started a series called More. And I was talking about how each of us longs for life spiritually to be a little bit more than what we're experiencing. Um, and then it, during the message, uh, well, we can wait for the PowerPoint. Let's see. It's okay. We're not in a hurry. There we go. And uh, during the message, I had us think about three questions. Okay, the first one was, when was the last time we felt longing for God? And when was the last time we felt longing for real love to radiate from our hearts? And when was the last time we felt a longing to live our lives in a way that is meaningful? Now, admittedly, I think that all of us can say, uh, I've, times I've experienced intimacy with God, and at times I can really feel like I'm flowing in God's love, and even sometimes I've even felt some meaning in life. And when this happened, we really become alert that something is going on, something important is going on, and we're connected with something deeper in our hearts. And, you know, some of the feeling may be like, you know, this is the life that I was meant to live. Now, others of us may still be with YouTube. 
that uh, band that says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So we can identify, you know what, I'm still thirsty. And others of you may have looked at those three options and said, you know, neither one of them really speak to me. I'm not even sure I know what deeper desires are. And other of us can be afraid to look at what those deeper desires are. I mean, what if we look and we find selfishness, something ugly? It isn't anything that I really want to look at. You know, some of us uh, may be thinking, you know, I, I don't really trust God. And I'm not really sure I want him to look what's in there because he might say something not very nice to me if he looks. Or, you know what, I, I'm not ready to forgive and I have a pretty good feeling that he probably would have to want to talk about that relationship and that situation and I'm just not really ready to do that. And fear really can, um, it is a strong emotion and it has the capacity to cause us to respond or cause us to be paralyzed and not do anything, you know. So not that long ago, I was praying for someone and um, later on, it became, I became aware that I really didn't love that person. And, um, you know, I was praying for them, but I just really wasn't feeling love. Actually, I was probably feeling judgment. And so this awareness came to me when I was with some other people. And I was embarrassed to let them know what I was becoming aware of. But as I did, I felt the kindness of God and the kindness of those people who were with me, and it led me to repentance. And, um, you know, outwardly, I looked pretty Christian. You know, I was praying for this person. I was taking time to listen to this person. You know, I was doing all the right things. But in the eyes of Jesus, I think I was the classic human example of a white-washed wall. You know, you see a wall that's painted white, and Jesus sees what's hidden behind the wall, and it's got mildew and mold. Now, if I had refused to look at what God was showing to me at that time and acknowledge it, then I would have been stuck with a surface religious life, which none of us really are interested in that. And so instead, I was able to get some freedom and be released from that hold over me. Now, at the, before the crucifixion, sometime before that time, Jesus had become pretty popular with certain circles. And there was particularly in chapter 20, uh, a mother who was an ambitious kind of mother. And she'd been watching Jesus' ratings. They were going up. And, you know, I think this is going to be the guy. So she goes up to Jesus and asks him for a favor. And pretty much she is vying for first and second political position for her son's when Jesus makes it big. So Matthew chapter 20 says this. It was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. What do you want? This is one of those questions that Jesus likes to ask. She said, give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest place of honor in your kingdom. One at your right hand and one at your left hand. Now, that kind of blatant brown nosing would have totally turned me off. 
But as we look at Jesus' response, we can almost hear the compassion in how he replies to her. Jesus responded, You have no idea what you're asking. And he said to James and John, Are you capable of drinking the cup that I'm about to drink? Sure, why not? Now, when we're honest with God and we acknowledge our stuff, even if it's self-centered and ugly and immature, Jesus will be gentle. He will respond in compassion and in truth. When we openly are honest with God, we can expect that kind of response and tone from a loving father. Now, it may have been the mom who asked for this favor, but it's obvious the brothers were in on it because they were not all alarmed or indignant that the mother had asked that question. And I think that if she had hidden this, it was a very self-serving and immature thing to ask. If she had kept it hidden, I believe it could have been used against those brothers and possibly ruined their potential to advance the kingdom. You know, sharing our desires in God's presence can help us discern what parts of us are false and what parts are true to who we are. So we take the time to go before God with his loving eyes. We become more self-aware. And when we become more self-aware and we see the response of God in that self-awareness, a lot of times we're a lot more able to let go. So in the pool of Bethsaida, there was a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him stretched out there on the pool and knew how long he'd been there, he said, do you want to get well? Another great question. In other words, do you want to do what it takes to get well? And to stay well. Do you want it bad enough to do something about it? And this is the response. The sick man said, well, sir, when the water is stirred. Now, in that time, there was an urban legend that when an angel came to the water and stirred the water and you were the first one to get into that pool, then you were going to be healed. So that's the context of his comment. Sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. I mean, by the time I get there, somebody else is already in. And so the man gives cultural, status quo, acceptable excuses. I am already too deep into this relationship, Jesus. There's nothing for me to turn back to. I'm too far gone. I'm addicted. I'm out of control. It's not my fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my spouse's fault. And so what does Jesus do? Pretty much he ignores everything that the guy just said and said, you know what, get up. Take your bedroll and start walking. What a joyful response. What a joyful invitation. Now the paralyzed man has to take a look at what's really so. He connects with a deeper desire to be well over his surface to look blameless. And when he did this, he opens the way for faith and power to come to him and to heal him and to stop him being the victim. Now look at a few verses later when Jesus says to the healed man, a little later Jesus found him in the temple and said, you look wonderful. You're well. 
you know, don't return to a sinning life or something worse might happen. You know, we want the golden bullet, right? We want the magic wand. We want the hocus pocus. And Jesus says the way it is. You have a part in fulfilling your desires. You have a part in fulfilling your healing. You have a part in performing or working or striving or looking for or desiring transformation. You have a part. And for this man, apparently, sinning was a part of his handicap or created the potential for handicap. We don't know all the details. I mean, maybe he was um, a neo-bungee jumper, you know, Bear grills, man versus wild kind of guy. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know what was the man's lifestyle that caused this man to be lame, but we certainly can see that Jesus makes a connection with his ailment and with suffering in his life with some kind of sin. So, we don't know, maybe the man doesn't know, but I bet that this encounter with Jesus caused him to begin to investigate and wonder what the connection was. And if there was something that he needed to um, choose in life differently. Now, maybe none of you parents had this problem, but on occasion when my perfect daughters were little, any one of them would find a variety of excuses as to why they didn't finish their homework or why they didn't do well on their test or why they didn't finish whatever. Now, because I was their mom and also their teacher, I didn't really accommodate to excuses. It wasn't because the material was too hard. It wasn't because I asked you to do too much. It wasn't because you needed to do your morning chores before you started school. No, it wasn't because your sister was reading last night. You procrastinated. You waited till last minute to study your spelling words. Right? Excuses. So, what are yours? Why are you stuck spiritually? Why isn't love radiating from your heart? Why is your life feeling a little bit meaningless? How satisfied and fulfilled are the longings you have for God? For relationships and meaning. Well, first of all, we have to know that we're lacking. Now, last week, I think we talked quite a bit about the ingredient of thirst. We talked about how we need to know we're thirsty in order to be motivated to get a drink. And if we want to see change in our lives, we desire to be more like Jesus and see transformation in our life, it may include looking at some of the desires that are in there Good or bad? What Dave shared this morning, even if your desires are selfish, remember he says something like that, like he wanted healing for a pattern of brokenness in his life. Now, in my head, I think that's a great personal motivation to seek God. But let's just say you have a desire that isn't that good, one that we shouldn't even mention in the fellowship. 
So why is it important to look at those desires, good or bad? Because sometimes our desires, even good ones, drive us unproportionately or improportionately. You know, we want to provide for our children, so we take one, two, three jobs. And because we're rarely home, we have to farm out the kids 10, 12 hours in the hands of someone that doesn't really care squat for our kids. I mean, they're getting paid minimum wage, for goodness sake. Our desire to do something good, providing for our children, ends up defeating the very thing we want. A safe, loving, nurturing environment with people who only want the best for our children. Our desires can be out of proportion, and our desires can drive our mood and our responses. You know, when we're driving down the highway, and we see someone trying to get in to the freeway, right? And then suddenly, out of the blue, they break every rule of merging, and they cut you off, and you're going 70 miles per hour. So you honk the horn, right? And the person turns around and flips you off. That's it. The only thing that stops you from following through with your fantasy of revenge is the fear of an increased insurance premium, right? (laughs) Of course, that never happens to you. You are happy when people cut you off. And you bless the people that take your parking space that you were waiting with your light indicator to get in, right? James 4, 1, 2 says, Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. James is kind of snarky. I'm kind of like James. They come about because you want your own way. Living the world the way I want it, right? And fight for it deep inside yourselves. We need to look inside, folks. What is in there? You lust for what you don't have. You are willing to kill to get it. Now, none of you are probably murderers in here. But if you look at Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about murder. And he has a whole new definition for murder. It goes way back from just being angry and moving that that scale. Okay. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? You know, the world simply does not bend to our desires. Wanting the fastest lane at the market, wanting our children to grow up and be righteous people, or wanting a job that we like going to. Our desires are rarely fully satisfied in the way that fills our ache. And when we don't get what we want, what we want, we rage and we want someone to pay, we want someone to be blamed. And if we suspect that God is in any way behind withholding, holding what we want, why, you know, you know what with God? I'm not going to spend time with God. I don't want anything to do with God. I'm not going to pray. I mean, it doesn't work. When the world, you know, is completely apathetic to our wants and our desires, it does hurt when we are ignored. And we can't pretend it doesn't, but it does affect us when deferred 
desire is withheld. It leaves us scarred. Now, some of us ignore the feelings and we say, well, I've dealt with that. But obviously, to everybody else that's near to you, it's very clear that you have buried desires. And it comes out in some very toxic ways. Maybe we have stopped talking about being single. The disappointment and the anger shows up in other relationships. Maybe we stop talking about getting a better job, but the buried surface, buried hurt and desires comes forward, comes up, whenever we hear of somebody having a fantastic vacation. And this morning I want to explore a practical pathway that men and women have used for centuries to push into God and to get into the deep parts of their heart where their desires reside and where God can come. Now, I was introduced to this practice of silence and solitude about four years ago. And I was working through a book called Conversations by Brian Rice. Now, as is my custom, I write on the margins of my books. I underline, highlight. I don't mind doing that. And I will often write down my thoughts, my observations, and my objections. And so in preparation for this morning's talk, I, of course, went to review that book, Conversation, and a few other books that I've read on the topic of silence and solitude. And I was reviewing the conversation, and I was basically shocked at my first impressions. All throughout the margins, I had written several negative comments. Well, maybe that worked for Jesus, but I don't see the disciples voluntarily practicing silence. How can we be still and be more productive than doing something? I do not want to become a navel gazer. You know, I can't even sit still for three minutes. How am I going to do that for 30 minutes? I might as well take a nap. These are my comments on the margin. But over the last four years, in my semi-faithful patience of quieting my soul before God, I've realized that there's a great benefit in the practice, contrary to my original bad impressions. Now, as I read my commentaries of four years ago, this is what I saw by myself. I was very self-centered, very pragmatic, and very restless in my soul. I was distracted, my attention was divided, My pace was too fast. I had a hurry-up mentality. I lacked margins, so I forgot how to say no to a variety of activities and therefore lacked the energy for a meaningful yes when God came knocking at my door. I was robbed of peace, joy, self-control, the very things promised to those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And the authors of these books on the practice for saying things like this, quote from Dallas Willard, Silence and solitude alone, wow, opens us up to the possibility of a radical relationship to God that can withstand all external events up to and beyond death. Wow. Really? Solitude and silence alone? I don't know about that. One of my comments next to the quote. 
So why do I share my negative first impressions? Because I'm pretty sure that there might be some of you in here that are feeling that resistance right now. And there's hope. You know, Randy and I love to go to the beaches, particularly we like going to Destin, Florida. I'm sorry, Joyce is not here. She would have gone, woohoo. Anyway, the beaches there are clear, they are clean, and often undisturbed. And now the Florida beaches make our Texan beaches look murky. Galveston is um, muddy, unclean, very disturbed. And our souls can be like that. We can take a jar of river water and we shake it. And it's murky and we can't really see what's going on. But we could imagine that if we were to place it and be, let it be still, that eventually it would become clear. The sediments would come to the bottom and we could see water in there. And, you know, it's not often, it's not only evil things that disturb our soul and the quietness of our soul. Good things, like way too much good things. The wrong good things at the wrong time can disturb our soul. Now, you might be experiencing Christian fatigue syndrome. I know I often on have experienced that, particularly because I'm a do-it girl. And practicing silence and solitude could be the very thing that could help settle the waters of our soul. So silence, let's do a definition of silence. Silence is not just creating an environment where it's quiet, so you would remove noises like uh, music, radios, TV, computer, definitely the cell phone. Kids, if able to, would be nice. <laughs> but it is a space where we can let go of our inner voice. Speaking of kids, Susanna Wesley, the mom of famous John and Charles Wesley, had bazillion kids. I mean, just, I feel sorry for her. I think it was 12 or something. And so what, what is she going to do for silence and solitude? She would take her apron... I can do this, and put it up over her head. And the kids knew when mom's got the apron over her head, we've got to be quiet. She was recalibrating with Jesus, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so anyway, so uh, silence, back to that. So it's also a space where we can let go of our inner noise. Now, have you noticed when your body is moving, you know, at a normal pace, but inside of you everything's like revved up? Ever experienced that? Yeah, well, I've become more aware of that as I'm practicing solitude and silence that I do that. So there's this inner noise going on. It can be inner thoughts, human activity, compulsions, you know, just drive. Now, solitude is a space where we pull away from the company of others in order to give our full and undivided attention to God. So we can experience intimacy with God. So we can do more than just talk about intimacy with God, but actually experience it by unplugging to plug into God. Now, what great saints from the past have discovered is that when you put these two together, silence and solitude, you create this environment where you're more able to connect with what's inside of you, your desires, and God's desires for you. And you sit there and you have a chat with God. In that place of silence and solitude, we look at our desires. And we look at God's desires, and we be with God about that. 
Now, um, Henry Nguyen, Nguyen makes the observation that, quote, solitude is so very essential for only there, here's another one, for only there, in quiet and with distance from others, in silence before God, can we come to terms with ourselves and begin to build our lives in response to God and to God's call. That's a lot right there in that one quote. You could have a devotion on that one quote for probably a month. In silence and solitude, what we long to happen is to get in touch with our real self, our desires, good or bad, good or bad, and then place it in the center of our time with God, and then we look at it. God, you and I, Papa, you and I, Jesus, you and I, Holy Spirit, you and I, just can we look at this? Now, my spiritual director, when I was first meeting with her, I mean, I just struggled and struggled with silence. It was so what I needed, but I just really struggled with it. And she finally helped me figure out why. And she would tell me, Clara, let your soul come out. I'm like, what are you talking about, let your soul come out? And sometimes she likes to use words like this. I'm just like, I have no idea what she's talking about. She goes, just let your soul come out, Clara. Okay? Don't be so quick to judge or to fix yourself. When she said that, I got it. Just let it come out and be with God. You know, sometimes we're not very safe with ourselves <laughs> because we're quick to judge, criticize, or fix. And that makes it very hard for a tender soul to come out before God. So if you have that tendency, pay attention to what I'm saying. There's something God wants to show you about. Why do you, Clara, always go into criticizing yourself or judging yourself or trying to fix yourself? Can we just talk about that? And Do you want to see how I feel about this? So it's not easy to create a space to attend to God. I know that because nothing in our 21st century culture supports having unproductive time with God and ourselves. You know, 10 years ago, we were promised that technology was going to give us more time to do what we really wanted to do. I have not experienced that. Not only do I have a personal desktop, but I can now carry my computer in my pocket or on my wrist. Rather than working 9 to 5 and stopping, our technology allows us to work from our bed while we drive. Even when we're traveling internationally, gone are the days when we can say, I'm sorry, I'm going out of country, and so I can't be reached. The promise that technology would save us time is a lie. We have learned to cram more into our lives. And in this new era of 24-7 access, we are doing severe damage to ourselves spiritually. We're less present to ourselves, less present to one another, and definitely to God. I don't know about you, but when Randy and I make space to have people come over to our home, it makes me really sad when their cell phone comes with them. Because we think nothing of taking a phone call, answering a text message in the middle of a conversation, celebration service, or family meals. We're being robbed. 
of being present with the God that we love and the people we care for. We're overstimulated and is wearing us out. Now, I want you to do an experiment. If you're going to go out to dinner or out to lunch for Mother's Day today, I want you to look at the people sitting at the tables. I think you will find what these photos are showing. And it's not just with the 20-somethings and the teenagers. It crosses through all the age groups. They're on cell phones, they are texting, or they're playing on some game. And they're not present to the very people sitting next to them. You know, I'm not anti-technology. I have a smartphone, I have an iPad, I have a Kindle, and I have a laptop. But I've found that the more I spend time on those, the less connected I feel with God and others. I've noticed that technology, and the more I'm in with technology, the more I need noise to stimulate and to avoid the void of loneliness I feel. Solitude is an opportunity to interrupt this cycle. By turning off the noise and the stimulation in our lives, we can become more attuned to God, to one another, to ourselves. So we're going to unplug in order to plug in. We need times of solitude with God. And not just when we're in trouble, but just to stay calibrated. Mark 1.35 While he was still night, way before dawn, he got up and went out to a secluded spot and prayed. So this is Jesus. Of course Jesus would know to do that. What a smart guy he is. But Jesus knows this about us. He knew this about his disciples. He knew about us. And so he was constantly trying to train the disciples how to unplug in order to have time to rest and plug into God. He was trying to teach them the life-giving rhythms of solitude, community, ministry. Solitude, community, ministry. Let's all say it together. Solitude, community, ministry. God, one another, the lost. And if we miss here, then what we have to give to community and to the lost is piddlings. Piddly squat, is that an expression? That, that's what, the source. We're not connected to the source. We're not plugged in. What are we going to have to give to one another and to the lost? Solitude. Community. Ministry. Mark 6.30, Jesus invites his disciples to come off by yourselves. Let's take a break and get a little rest. For there was constant coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they got in the boat and went off to a remote place by themselves. Now, this verse is great for the concept of unplugging. But when you put it in the context of what was going on, it is very compelling. Because in that chapter, earlier in that chapter, is when they discover, are told, that John the Baptist's head had been cut off for some silly whim. And it was their responsibility to retrieve this head and to bury it. And this is simultaneously, this news comes in simultaneously as to when they are being commissioned for the first time to go and heal the sick and cast out demons. 
So they come back to Jesus. They're all excited about the report and this information. And this is what Jesus says to them. Come off by yourselves. Let's take a break and get a little rest. You know, we will always have people that need us, our kids, our boss, our family, our friends, but we will not have anything of value to give to them if we do not connect with God. So right after, verse 32, what happens? Someone saw them going. So they're going to go off to rest. And the word got around, and from the surrounding towns, people went on foot running and got there ahead of them. So the place that they were going to go to rest, they went there running to meet them. And Jesus sees what's going on. Goodness gracious. And he says, okay, let's feed these people, 5,000 of them. And then unrelentless, very focused Jesus says, as soon as the meal was finished, Jesus insisted, insisted that the disciples get in the boat and go on ahead across to Bethsaida, where he dismissed, and he would dismiss the congregation. So Jesus is wanting to help us disconnect. He's rooting for us, because he knows the value that's going to come when we do that. Jesus is serious about us unplugging folks. We need to unplug from work and family responsibilities, from the oughts and the shoulds, and the activities, and the drive to perform, and the drive to look good, and to get ahead. So Jesus seeks to guide his disciples then and now into rhythms of solitude, community, and ministry. You know, we need to ask, am I exhausted? If I've been pushing too hard on the pedal, are our relationships strained? How are our kids doing? How's my health? In times of solitude and solitude and silence, when we make it a priority to wait before the Spirit, we are going to be known and we're going to know Him better. In silence, my soul waits for you and you alone, O oh God. From you alone comes my salvation. So when I started practicing silence and solitude, one of the compulsions I had to give up was my drive to make things happen and to fix things. Instead, I had to wait for God. What a concept. So the Bible is full of examples of waiting on God to act. Exodus 14. The Israelites are literally backed into a corner the rest sees in front of them, and the Egyptian army is behind, pressing in. And this is what Moses says. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. <laughs> when we enter into silence, we are acknowledging, I cannot do this alone. In fact, I'm going to step away right now, God, and just let you do it for me. There's so much more I can say about the practice of silence and solitude that my time's up. But if you want to read some books that could help you, I put a couple up there um, on the PowerPoint. They're both written by uh, Ruth Haley Barton. The first one is Sacred Rhythms, 
And it's a book about a variety of practices that we can um, do to connect more with God and see the transformation in our life that we want to live a more meaningful life. And chapter two, um, titled Solitude, is the chapter that would talk about that practice. And then she has a book called Invitations to Solitude and Silence, a whole book just to that one, Experiencing God's Transformational Presence. Like I said, I just scratched the surface in 30 minutes. So what we're going to do right now in the last few minutes of our time together is I want to provide uh, for us a time of silence, and I'm going to walk you through it. Okay, you're not going to have to figure this out by yourself. I'm going to um, help you go through this. This is something that helped me to first get started. Okay, so if you would trust me, uh, if you would uh, get, make sure you're comfortable, you know, just something's pinching you, get it out from pinching you, all right? And then um, take a deep breath and blow it all out. And then um, if you would trust me, if you would just close your eyes. And then I'm just going to walk you through this. And you'll know we're done because there's going to be times of silence. So don't get nervous. If it's silent, it's planned. All right? But you'll know we'll be done because I will end our time in prayer. Okay? I want you to think about this. I want you to get connected with your desire to be with God. You want to be with him, you want to meet with him. Get connected with your desire to be with God. And I want you to get connected with God's desire to be with you. He's here with you, and he wants to meet with you. Get connected with God's desire to be with you. I want you to imagine that Jesus is here very close. And he's here to be just with you. Nobody else matters. Just you. And he asked you, what do you want from me? What is your deep desire?
Jesus, thank you. Thank you for caring enough to ask that question. And thank you that you're here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay. So, if you would like some prayer, ministry prayer about something going on in your life or need some healing or something coming up that you're concerned about, um, you come up and we'll have folks to pray for you.